you want to turn to Psalm 19, Psalm of David, um, we'll read that and then we'll talk about it. Psalm 19, to the choir master, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word today, we are aware that we are limited in our insight and that you have given us a great and wonderful word. You have shown us through creation and through your word and through your son who you are. And we thank you for doing that. Pray that our hearts would be attentive this morning to the things in your word. And we pray in your name. Amen. Psalm 19. It's a, a beautiful psalm. It's, it is one of my very favorites. Um, C.S. Lewis liked it too. He said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And uh, a recommendation from a man like C.S. Lewis shouldn't go unnoticed. Psalm 19 shows us how God speaks in creation, how God speaks through the scriptures, and how God's servant responds. It also shows us the revelation of God in the word, the revelation of God in the world, Actually, I reversed those. First, the revelation of God in the world, then the revelation of God in the Word, and the revelation of God to the worshiper. 
Or another way to look at it is that we look up at the skies, we look down at the scriptures, and we look in at ourselves. So God has written two books to show us who he is. Spurgeon called them the world book, that is creation, and the word book, scripture. But he wasn't the first to think of, of that. The English philosopher Francis Bacon spoke of the book of God's word and the book of God's works. So, I don't know about you, but I love being outdoors. I spent a lot of time as a, as a kid outdoors playing, uh, hiking, camping, and these kinds of things. But these days my job keeps me indoors. But some professions are very outdoorsy, like, um, well, for example, being a shepherd. We don't have many of those in Toronto, but uh, in the days uh, when this was written, that was a common profession. There was a man named David who lived in Bethlehem about 3,000 years ago, eventually King David. Imagine David looking up at the sky, and he says to himself, God is telling me who he is. He's, he's speaking through creation. Uh, again, quoting Spurgeon, he said, in, in his earliest days, the psalmist, while keeping his father's flock, had devoted, devoted himself to the study of God's two great books, nature and scripture. And he is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. So first let's see what God is saying through the world book. I'm going to look at verses 1 and 2. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So there, there is a fact that is presented here, and that is that creation is speaking. Just as human speech is meant to be heard and understood, so the language of creation is also meant to be heard and understood. God has designed us in a way that we can perceive it, and, and creation in such a way that it communicates certain things about God. Notice the words that he uses to express what creation is doing. It, it is declaring, it is proclaiming, it is pouring out speech, it is revealing knowledge. So this declaration, this proclamation is, is a public pronouncement of something. And what, what is that something? What is that communication? What is the content of this speech that's going on? Well, verse 1 says that it is the glory of God and his handiwork. The glory of God is the, the essence of who God is. It's his holiness on display. It's his, his majesty, his greatness. The Hebrew word has a meaning related to the words for weight or heaviness. It's the value or worth of something or someone and so that's the glory of God. He, he also proclaims his handiwork. And that's simply his creation. It's the fact that God is creator. 
So from observing these things, we can conclude a few things about God. First of all, we can conclude that he must have pre-existed creation. If something is created as a creator, he must have been before his creation. He is eternal. We also know that he's incredibly powerful. If you think of the sun, and you think of the power of the sun and the, uh, the millions and billions and trillions of stars that have even more power than the sun, and then the God who created them all and created the laws of physics to control them, you realize that God is a very, very powerful God. And finally, we, we can see from creation that there's someone in charge that he is divine, he is God, he is the Almighty One, he is the ruler of heaven and earth. <clears throat> There's a lot that we cannot see from creation about God. <clears throat> creation doesn't tell us about the love of God, or the grace of God, or the plan of God for man. But it does tell us that God is great and powerful. Romans 1, 19, Paul speaks about creation and how it reveals God. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, that is, to men, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So God has created this world, and through it, he has revealed himself to men. And as a result, he goes on to say, so they are without excuse. We are, we are held accountable to know about God because he has shown us who he is. See, the cause of atheism is not that there is an ins insufficient knowledge for the evidence of God. It's rather, it's a moral problem that's masquerading as an intellectual problem. And Romans 1.18, just prior to that, says that by our unrighteousness, that is by our sin, we suppress this truth because we don't want a God who places demands on our life. So we see that creation speaks about God's glory and about God as creator. But it also tells us the extent of this speech. Who hears what God is speaking through his creation? Verse 4 says that creation's voice goes out through all the earth. Just turn back to that. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. <clears throat> so, every human being through the entire world has seen evidence that there is a God. Creation is speaking to all men everywhere, whether they're city dwellers, tribal peoples in a mountainous region, or in a jungle. Regardless of the language or, or the culture, everyone has seen 
this evidence of God. You may never hear me preach again, but every day you'll hear another sermon, another proclamation, another declaration from God's creation. Every sunrise is like the introduction, and every sunset is like the closing sentence. Now, notice also how the psalmist uses the image of the sun in verse 4. In them, that is, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. God has sort of set up a tent for the sun. It's a place for the sun to live. This image of the bridegroom tells us something about the radiance of the sun, and, and this strong man speaks of the power of the sun. So we see the sun rising, traveling across the sky and setting again, and it says there is nothing hidden from its heat. The energy from the sun warms the entire planet and makes it habitable and fruitful, and no part of the earth is unaffected. And in a similar way, just like the sun warming the entire earth, the voice of creation speaks universally about God. Everyone is heard. And so there is no excuse for ignoring God. If you're speaking with somebody and, and the universe, the creation, just does not convince them that there is a God, then they may be resisting the truth. I think a good thing to do at a time like that is to pray for them. I know that in my own case, uh, my own life, I grew up going to church because my family went to church. But uh, when I became a teenager, I decided that I knew better. And I really did not want to submit to any authority, whether the church, my parents, the government, Sin had really entered my life and had darkened my mind, and it kept me from seeing the God of creation. The world book just wasn't enough. Mercifully, later on, God changed my mind as he brought the word of God, the word book, into my life. But that the, the scripture teaches that our sin causes us to suppress the truth about God. And we don't see because we don't want to see. Now, an honest questioner will find evidence of God everywhere he looks. Unfortunately, by nature, we're not those honest questioners. However, many of the world's most brilliant scientists have concluded that the universe must have been created not by random chance but by a super intelligent and powerful being. Like Sir Isaac Newton in the 17th century said, the most beautiful system of the sun, the planets, and the comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Unfortunately, many do reject God in spite of the evidence. For example, Stephen Hawking, you may have heard of him, a greatly respected physicist, the author of books like A Brief History of Time and The Theory of Everything. 
He said the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. He recognized that. <clears throat> and I think there are religious implications whenever you start to discuss the origin of the universe. But most scientists prefer to shy away from the religious side of it. Unfortunately, he rejected the truth that he was exposed to, even though he recognized some of the implications of what he uh, had studied. Not to know God through creation takes a certain amount of effort. Paul says in Romans 1 that people suppress the truth when they reject God. They push the truth down, and that takes effort. So we see that God speaks to us through creation and, and that his voice has reached all of humanity. Every single person has seen proof that God exists, that he's eternal, and that he's incredibly power, powerful. But what if God had only spoken through creation? What if we only had the world book? We would know something about God, but we would not have enough to truly know him. We would have enough to have no excuse for being an atheist, but we wouldn't understand him. We wouldn't understand the nature of man or sin or salvation. These things would be unclear to us. So God has also given us the word book in human language and has ensured that we have access to his word through the written scriptures. So moving on in Psalm 19, verses 7 to 9. I'll read those one more time. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This is a big change of topic from creation to God's word. But the connection is that God has revealed himself in more than one way. In verse 1, God, the word God is a translation of the Hebrew word El, which is the very general term for God. And this is speaking of the general revelation of creation. In verses 7 to 9, the word the Lord is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the special revelation of God's word. The, David goes on then to tell us six titles of the word of God, six characteristics of the word, six benefits of the word, and the ultimate value of the word. Looking at verses 7 and 9, you see that he uses terms like the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the rules of the Lord. One thing that's very clear is that this is God's word. But another thing that comes through, if you look at those together, is that the Word of God is a comprehensive message from God. It tells us all that we need to know to show us how to think and how to live. Then he goes on to talk about the characteristics of the Word. 
It is perfect in verse 7. It is sure. It is right. It is pure. It is clean. It is true. Taking these terms together, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true, they emphasize an essential truth, and that is that God's word is trustworthy. The statements of Scripture are absolutely true and verifiable. There's a lot of things we cannot trust these days. You can't really trust what you read on the internet most of the time. The news, politicians, statistics, photos can be photoshopped. It seems like everything can be faked. Even our teachers, our friends, our enemies, even our own eyes can deceive us. But the Word of God is absolutely true and trustworthy. It will never let you down. Psalm 118, one of the verses says, His word is firmly fixed in the heavens, and it is unlimited in its perfection. So if you want to know what is true, look in the book. It is the ultimate source of truth. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Looking at the benefits of God's word, in verses 7 to 9 again, it revives the soul, it makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, it endures forever, and it is righteous altogether. I want to look at one of these benefits in some detail, and that's the first one, that is that it is revives the soul. That term, reviving the soul, is identical to the term that David uses in, when he wrote Psalm 23, where it says, he restores my soul. Just a slightly different word that it's translated to, but it's the same in the Hebrew. It restores my soul. The soul is the inner person, or the heart, the mind, the, the very center of our being. And this idea of reviving is to restore something. He restores my soul, it says in Psalm 23. God's Spirit totally transforms the soul, and He uses the Word of God to do it. Just like if you restore a classic car, you bring it back to its, uh, to its original beauty. Or an old painting, you re restore the appearance of it. In a similar way, God's Word creates this life within us. It gives us this new birth. And the New Testament confirms that God's Word does this uh, over and over again. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul says to Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings, able to make you wise. 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Uh, Romans 10.14, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Because it's the word of God that leads us to faith. And because of that, we should make every effort to expose ourselves and unbelieving friends and family to God's Word. There's a lot of ways to do that. 
There are church services, Bible studies, kids clubs, um, door-to-door evangelism, giving somebody a tract, sharing a verse of scripture or a thought from scripture from, uh, from what you've been reading with a neighbor. So it's very essential. It's non-negotiable. Also for the believer, God's word restores and strengthens our faith. It encourages us with what God has done for us. It's our daily food, and without it, we wither away. So, having pondered the titles, the characteristics, and the benefits of God's Word, the psalmist now wants to answer another question about the Scriptures, and that is, what is the ultimate value to us? In verses 10 and 11, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Taking again from uh, another preacher, John MacArthur, he summarized this section by saying, God's word is the greatest possession, the greatest pleasure, the greatest protection, and the greatest provision. It's the greatest possession because it's gold. It's the greatest pleasure because it's honey. It's the greatest protection because we are warned and the greatest provision because of its great reward. So what we've seen so far is that God has provided an initial revelation of himself to all men everywhere through creation and that he's provided a comprehensive revelation of himself through the scriptures. David has meditated deeply on God's word. The scriptures have revived him. They've made him alive spiritually. They've instructed him of God's ways. They've taught him. God's commandments have warned him and shown him the right right path. But still, he realizes that he fails to fully obey God's word. He realizes he's in trouble and he needs God's help. So he writes in verse 12, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Notice that he uses four different words here to point to his failings, errors, faults, sins, transgressions. He says, who could discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Why why are our faults sometimes hidden from us? Because we don't recognize our sins sometimes. We may speak harshly to someone and not realize how it hurts them. We may polish our image to inflate our achievements and downplay our failings and let other people believe it. And we don't see that. We may entertain immoral fantasies and we don't see them as adultery in the heart. We don't see them, or maybe we don't want to see them. But they are hidden from us. David recognizes this about his own heart. 
But he knows that there's another way we can fail to keep God's commands, and he calls those presumptuous sins. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Those are the arrogant, insolent, brazen, intentional sins that we sometimes commit. David knew the pain of intentional sin when he committed adultery and murder in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah. Like us, David had problems with sin. So what does he do? He prays, he calls out, he implores God. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. David's desire was commendable. He wanted to be innocent and blameless before God. So he cast himself on God's mercy, recognizing only God could provide a remedy for sin. Now, under the law, atonement for sin could only come through animal sacrifice. But about a thousand years after David wrote Psalm 19, God provided the ultimate sacrifice in the person of Jesus, the only one who ever lived a totally innocent and blameless life. And by faith in his sacrifice, we are united with him so that we may be declared innocent and blameless. And this is what we call justification. And by exchanging our sin for Jesus' righteousness and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, we're set free from being enslaved to sin. We're given the desire and the strength to fight sin and to move towards God instead of resisting Him. Like the psalmist, David, we also need God's ongoing forgiveness. We need His help to keep from sin. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to do this through the Word of God. So let's pray as David did. Declare me innocent from hidden faults and keep back your servant from presumptuous sins, recognizing that Jesus' sacrifice and the gift of the Holy Spirit working through his word makes this possible. So we've seen God speaking through creation and speaking through his word, but there's another way that God has spoken. The very greatest revelation of himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, God has spoken through his Son, Hebrews 1 verse 2 says that God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Hebrews goes on to say that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. We see the glory of God in creation, but even more clearly in the Son. As wonderful as it is that creation reveals the glory of God, it's even better and greater that he's given us the totally trustworthy written word and his ultimate communication of the Son of God entering the world as a human being who gave himself to make a way for us to be forgiven. The psalmist ends with a prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He's asking God that both his words and his thoughts would be acceptable to God. And it's crucial that we recognize our dependence on God to live a godly life. 
to think and speak and act in accordance with his will. We so desperately need the Holy Spirit working through his word to bring this about. And he acknowledges God here, not as his judge, but as his rock, that is his stability, and his redeemer as his savior. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May this be our prayer today as well. Let's pray together. Father, we have looked into your word, meditated on it, and learned from it. I pray that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.